0: Once again to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I'm Ethan.
1: And I am Michael.
0: And we are in rooms with Scotch. We are in all room with Scotch.
1: Keeping it smooth.
0: Yeah, I don't know why I kind of started this like smooth radio DJ (laughs) energy, but I do appreciate you playing into it. Um
1: I'm leaning in.
0: Ooh, I can you lean wait, can you lean a little bit? like out like you're a little too far in and maybe you can just lean back out a bit uh Uh, 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 uh,
1: uh, 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 uh. nope not nope
0: yeah okay yeah perfect stay right there uh
1: all right
0: frozen for the entirety of this episode don't move a muscle okay uh you don't get to drink any scotch is an
1: illusion anyway
0: so thank you uh, you don't get to drink any scotch this episode. You do have to stay frozen there, like no! following the literal interpretation of what I just said. Obviously, I, however, and okay, fine, Michael, you can too. Uh, we'll be drinking Glen the original, uh, t- aged ten years, um, uh, perfected by the sixteen men of Tain, uh, single malt Scotch whiskey. Uh, I think I mentioned last time that. This is the third time we have had a Glenmorangie scotch on this episode and I mentioned in the secret pre-show podcast the uh, or podcast thank you. Uh, I mentioned in the secret off the podcast text that is t- text thread that is still canon for the show that um <laughs> I just seem like I have a Glenmorangie craving every like like once a year. I just need specifically Glenmorangie, and that's usually when I bring it to the show. It doesn't matter what the bottling is. Um, I just need it. Uh, and I read somewhere, and this is yet another of my things where, like, I read it somewhere, I remember it, I haven't done any research to back it up, so it could be just me making wild claims. But I remember reading somewhere that Glenmorangie is the most popular um, dram asked for in Scotland. Like, it's the best-selling single malt scotch in scotland and i believe it's the glenmore and g10 or maybe it's just the brand itself but um i always feel sort of like hmm. i don't know kinship to my extremely distant uh you know scottish relatives that i do have like i talk about my irish heritage i also have scottish heritage um i would not be able Brag. to yeah thank you I was gonna say I would not be able to tell you any <laughs> names or any locations, so it's pretty uh, impostery stuff. But um, I, I conceived my liking for Glenmorangie before I found out that that fact about its popularity within Scotland. But I do feel smug about it, so mm. uh, there you go, brag. Well, that's something. Yeah, <laughs> and I've almost certainly said this exact set of facts any of the other times that we've had uh, <laughs> Glenmorangie on this show. So here we are. But we're drinking Glenmorangie. Yep. Yep. Okay. We are also a very strict podcast full of rules. And I would like my wife Karen to come into the room right now and read the rules.
2: Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so, because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses.
0: And what happens if someone breaks the rules?
2: If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly.
0: Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, That said, uh, let us uncork, pour and Schlenk.
1: Hey, wife, would you like to come over here and get some of this? I'm offering it to you.
2: How could I refuse such an offer?
0: Now, uh, Michael...
1: It's over there.
0: (laughs) Michael is being very specific and explicit about this offer because after the last... Uh, episode was recorded um there was a dispute offered on sarah or offered by sarah about whether michael had and now that we've clinked glasses i'm just going to say fulfilled the rules fulfilled the offering based (laughs) rules and i desperately wanted to support sarah's side both because i'm terrified of her much more than of michael and like always want to be on her side for for that sake um but also because like i would love to punish michael when he doesn't get to punish me back um who wouldn't uh listen this is a family podcast so i can't respond to that um anyway i did judge the dispute to i just couldn't quite get there like i couldn't quite support sarah's case and make a case that michael had lost um, it was too in the weeds. Uh, I would tell you what I told Sarah, but, like, again, this is a family podcast. Actually, that sounds worse than me just saying it, which is just that I, <laughs> that sounds I really told nice. her that she would have to punish <laughs> Michael on her own. Um, and I'm sorry about that for everyone who, like, listens to this podcast for the purity and the cleanness of it, but uh, talked myself into a corner there, something that often happens. Yeah, anyway, that course. said, we were talking about a book. And not about me getting in trouble. Um, This book is, that we are talking about, is, this is me uh, loosely referencing a sketch from Monty Python's Flying Circus, where they do like like a segment from like an evening show or something, and it's a woman who has... theory about dinosaurs and all she'll say about it is this theory about dinosaurs is my theory and what i would like to say about it is that it is mine that this theory about dinosaurs that is mine that i have come up with is mine anyway this book that we are discussing is the midnight library it's
1: like a purred happily thing yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. the midnight library by matt Haig. that's pretty aggressive and i'm sorry about that Anyway, um, uh, yeah, Matt Hag is a, a British novelist. He has written this book. It's the only book by him I have read. These are completely irrelevant details. Um, yeah, so uh, that said, um, I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about because... It may be the broadest subject, so it may take us the longest, and it may also naturally dovetail into other things that Michael actually wants to talk about. Um, but sure. uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up was not a not an officially taboo topic, but a an um, unofficially taboo topic. I I thought there was a cleverer way to say that, but mm. yeah, we're going to talk about genre. Um, we often avoid talking okay. about genre because it's nebulous and it can be endless and, like, in a lot of ways people don't really care. Like, genre is yeah. both very important and it's also just, like, sort of a marketing scheme that bookstores created to, like, sell books more efficiently. Um, but I think right. genre, and we can keep this as brief. We should collapse
1: all genre boundaries. I mean... Destroy the system. The system is a deception. Meant to feed you lies. You know
0: how sometimes you're getting made fun of, and yet, like, you completely agree with all the satirical (laughs) things the person is saying? Anyway, um... (laughs) I, I, like, I I was going to say we can keep this discussion of genre as brief or as expansive as we think is interesting, but, um... I do think there's an interesting genre question here, Michael. And I am going to Mm -hmm. try to pose this as a question. Um, In solid Michael and Ethan tradition, it may be a 12-minute question or sort of a 12-minute essay slash TED Talk with a question mark at the end. Um, But who knows? We'll see. Uh, So here's what I'd like to say. So... We talked, we, uh, mentioned last episode that we had done a whole episode previously on multiverses. Um, this book obviously, uh, plays with the multiverse concept in a, you know, uh, very obvious way. Um, multiverse concept is something that comes to us out of, well... I, I I guess even the, that base statement is not true. What I was starting to say is that it comes to us out of genre fiction. But as we talked about um, in our table-setting episode, um, one of the, the sort of progenitors of the multiverse idea in fiction before that term was even coined was Borges, um, who is often considered sort of a literary fiction author, though he's also, you know, claimed and beloved by... People in science fiction and fantasy, and what we what we often refer to as very genre um, writing, um, mm-hmm. which maybe is like maybe does actually set the table for this question, uh, better than I than I thought when I was second guessing myself just now. Um, you know Borges again. He's he's studied. You'll see him studied in in literature classrooms to this day. But he was also like one of gene wolf's all-time favorite authors like there's a character in the book of the new Sun that people uh. a lot of people think is just like him inserting boris into his own uh uh fictional world um so and like that gets at the i'm sort of setting up an artificial continuum or a uh Something like that here. Um, So if you'll bear with me and envision one side of the continuum is what we might call literary fiction. The other side of the continuum is what we might call speculative fiction. So fantasy, science fiction, horror, adjacent genres. And what I'm about to say is only going to be internally consistent. I'm not really interested in a discussion of, like, whether it makes sense across the board. But for our purposes... Um, on the literary fiction side, I, I want to—I want this continuum or this this uh, 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 continuum is the best word I can think of, I guess—sort um, of to exist in terms of what readers might be wanting to get out of the experience of reading a piece of fiction. Um, and so, if you uh-huh. if you think about that idea and think about a continuum from literary to speculative those are our two like extremes on the literary side i think what you get is people are often looking for things like studies of character studies of culture a particular time and place or a, a nexus of time place gender race anything like that that can sort of exist um sure and then like there's a whole sub wing i think of talking about didacticism if that's even a word and if i even pronounced it correctly the Mm -hmm. idea of message fiction and not necessarily like you know uh, a straight up parable parable or an allegory I tried to say parable and allegory simultaneously it did not go well um but <laughs> Parable. Al- a- um not necessarily that like uh uh heavy handed but like message fiction as like we're looking at this particular uh uh idea that's in the zeitgeist or something um and this may be where the literary end sort of maybe this is less a continuum and more a horseshoe where it sort of has a parallel with the speculative fiction (laughs) so in a speculative fiction end of things like people might be um looking for any number of other things so like for one thing speculative fiction is often about world building to some degree right like you're exploring a time or a place or a culture or an idea that is just um uh anti anti anti-factual or anti-historical like you're explicitly exploring something that like sure is the opposite of how things are or how we perceive them or how we know them in some way um but the farther you drill down into that the more you might be i think we've talked on this podcast before about the concept that like fantasy novels and i think historical fiction which shares a lot of overlap with science fiction and fantasy in terms of approach and technique fantasy science fiction and historical novels might be the only three genres where you could have a character who doesn't go through any kind of arc whether internal or external But only exists as a viewpoint character To explore Excuse me, explore a milieu um, To have experiences Because the thing that the reader is getting Is not a study of character And it's not a, a political message Or a, a cultural message It's just the exploring of an imagined world Right, or, you know, any number of other things that you can get sort of out of genre fiction. Maybe it's the adventure. So maybe the character is very one-note-like. Sure. And we could have an argument about this, but, like, I'd say Indiana Jones is an example of a character who himself doesn't really change throughout the course of any given adventure. Like, he's still who he was at the end Mm. um, from who he was at the beginning. But that's not the point. The point is he goes through this adventure and this experience and sort of the world that he's moving through and the the action that he takes yeah. is is more the point. And you know, this bleeds into like detective genres or mystery genres or westerns, you know, all have this, this shared idea that like the characters don't need to be that deep or that complex and they don't necessarily need to change over the course of a story. <laughs> um they exist as, like, a catalyst. The, like, cheapest version, the lowest-rent version, would be, like, a literal, like, self-insert catalyst for whoever the book is for. Like, there are a lot of books with, like, middle-aged white guys who go on adventures and, like, their, like, skill and physical prowess saves the day and they get to, like, you know, sleep with a 20-year-old, a like, starlet-type person who's like Mm. awed by them and it's and they're all
1: or or think just about anything by edgar rice yeah edgar rice
0: i mean i was thinking of much more recent examples um but you know they're all written by like middle-aged white guys you know this is this is a whole thing um so and i've probably just made the waters clear as mud here but um (laughs) sort of my point is that like a lot of stories that involve multiverses or that take place in multiverses or have multiverses as a concept um are much more toward the speculative fiction side of this continuum right like um Mm
2: -hmm.
0: it's not i I mean again i go to movies because like we've all seen them but like if you think about uh the Marvel Cinematic Universe for example right like is something that's been flirting yeah. more and more heavily to the point of more recently sort of marrying and taking home the concept of a multiverse like you know uh, uh, Robert De Niro or not De Niro but uh, Martin Scorsese got a lot of flack for saying that like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe there's not the drama of like human connection or like deep character study and like I never understood why he got so much flack for that because like that's true the only the only failure there on his part is the failure to understand that like that's not the point or maybe he does understand that and that was the criticism that like whatever um but the point i'm making is that like in the mcu you know you have you have character arcs you have you know characterization but that's not the reason however many million people bought tickets the reason is the world and the special effects and the the um sort of Mm -hmm. universe that has been built and i think if you and i'm caricaturing and i'm you know making things cut and dried that aren't cut and dried but i think if you took someone who was buying a ticket to a marvel film that like doctor strange and the multiverse of madness right if you took someone who was like Mm -hmm. your sort of lowest common denominator audience person for that and you handed them the midnight library um i think they would stand a pretty high chance of being utterly bored because the argument that i'm making is that on this continuum that i've artificially constructed that you know has no bearing necessarily Mm -hmm. on outside reality that the midnight library
1: in the court of ethan
0: exactly uh the court of ethan and thorns um (laughs) the midnight library exists much closer to the other end of that spectrum right um it acts much more like literary fiction uh you know a term that has been overused almost to the point of meaninglessness but uh still here we are um now all of that said this is all stuff that i'm like hoping that you'll just go with me for the sake of argument we're still setting the table here it's a very you know bell in the in the beast castle type of of table like it's a very long table and we have to do all of the song and dance to even get it set um great what so if you accept all of that as i try the
1: gray stuff what's that can i try the gray stuff no
0: um it's delicious uh no I, don't, I also don't like that you've taken us from the Beast's Castle with the most magnificent library I've ever seen and dropped us right into uh, the realm of it. Um, but here we are. Uh, okay, so all of what I said as premise, that the Midnight Library acts a lot more like a literary novel. It does have a couple things that seem much more like... They exist much more toward the, the genre fiction, the, the speculative fiction end of this continuum mm. or spectrum. I think spectrum is the word I was actually trying to come up with for 11 minutes. But, um, yeah. That specifically, and I was, I was trying to f- like, like flip through and, and find the name. And as anyone knows who's listened to this podcast in the last six years, I'm terrible with character names, but, um, Specifically, the person that uh, Nor- Nora meets. Um, mm-hmm. The person that Nora meets who is also like her, who is also traveling through these different lives and touring them.
1: Right. The slider. Yeah. It's Hugo. Hugo,
0: thank you. Um, so mm-hmm. Hugo is is one. Uh, and I feel like I had another example... I mean I guess maybe even just the concept of the midnight library itself clearly has like a slightly like neil gaimanish I would I would argue aspect to it where it's like oh mm-hmm. specifically just in the scenes where you're in the library where you know the the librarian is is uh this manifestation but it's like there are rules both to her as a as a person yeah. or as a being as well as like the the physical construct or implication of a physical construct that the library itself represents like you know there's some like rules because i guess the thing i didn't say about the the like fantasy side of the narrative is there's often like rules like there's magic in harry potter or there's like um sort of a wild magic that runs throughout tolkien but it has certain rules even if they're not always explained or there's like Brandon Sanderson is a popular recent example whose magic rules are very specifically, if not pedantically, always explained. Um, and it <laughs> seems like the Midnight Library exists sort of on on that part of the continuum, and Hugo may sort of exist on that part of the continuum too, where there's like clearly rules, and mm. he and Nora have this dalliance, and um, you know, but but like ultimately she makes a different choice than he has made and he's gotten kind of lost in this whole world um okay so i think we've finally gotten to my actual question for you michael um great why that's the question that's it that's the (laughs) question go no i'm just kidding um uh, more specifically like why in a book that's clearly using sort of the multiverse idea as, like, a giant metaphor or a thought experiment or an examination, all stuff that can exist on a very literary plane. Why do we have these few elements mm-hmm. that, like, sort of exist in much more of, like, a like a fantasy-ish or loosely science fiction-y, like, um you know much more i don't know pulp kind of a tradition like make that make Mm. sense or tell me that like all of the basis of my argument so far is like nonsense and there's a reason it doesn't make sense those (laughs) are your only two choices
1: no oh okay only two all right um no i i think you are keying into something that's really interesting uh in this book and uh, it, it reminds me of um, a book by uh, Orson Scott Card, where he's talking about writing science fiction yeah, and fantasy. Yeah, that's the one, I, I um, sort
0: of paraphrased it earlier when I was talking about the idea of, yep. um, the milieu. yeah, the milieu can be the character, you don't need a viewpoint character that changes it. Like, yep. I, that was all me paraphrasing stuff you said on this podcast that you got from that book. Just so our lines of attribution... Yeah, are clear.
1: and I think I I have yeah, said it before sure. that I, I, he says like a, a sci-fi or fantasy book can do like one of four things and a good author will emphasize one of those and, and not worry too much about the others. And it's like character, so the character arc or plot um, or... Uh, the milieu, like it's just exploring this space or a concept, which is similar to the milieu. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing my fragmented memory of, of this book because it's been a while. Um, so I apologize if anybody knows better, but that's like what I remember about this. So, um, and those are things that a sci-fi or fantasy book specifically can do, um, you mentioned historical fiction, which I think can also do those things as well in a, in a different way from a more literary fiction. Um, I mean,
0: the more you know, it
1: can, but even there, there are ways that it. The can. more that
0: you get um, like, but historical fiction, like this, could be a whole you know pot like hour long discussion in and of itself. The parallels between historical fiction and like
2: yeah. science
0: fiction or fantasy they share a lot of techniques in that. Both are concerned yes. with introducing you to a world that is alien to you. And, like, as a.
1: Hey, Google, pause the vacuum.
0: As a reader, you. You are going to this genre specifically for that alienness, so they have to use a certain set of techniques to bridge the gap between right. there is something alien and I have to make you understand it. And the clumsy way is what we call info dumping, where one character starts a sentence with, as you know, and then three pages later has explained the whole world. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it gets more elegant and and stuff from there. But like a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers have also written historical fiction. Like there's a, what seems like a statistically improbable number of crossover authors between those two things. And I've always suspected that it's like because sure. there's probably so many techniques that are shared.
1: Right. Well, so okay. Um, so ta- taking that and and talking about this book that is by and large a literary fiction, but with these elements of sci-fi or fantasy, um, we'll say it's it's. Uh, Literary fiction with a, a spark of, of magic inserted sure. into it, if you will. Um, and we've got Hugo in there as a character, um, which I would suggest, uh, and I don't want you to react to this necessarily right now because um, it's it's not my main point, but I would suggest that Hugo is himself, with his conversation, sort of its own vignette um, within this, that it's 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 another concept that is there. For Nora to explore mm-hmm. and then leave, um, that it's because you know we we want to have those those rules, and I, and I think really Hugo being there and having this interaction with other sliders um, who are there, and I think there's mention of like she met a couple more while she was jumping in all of these things. Um, it's mm-hmm. really the bare minimum um, of of rule ness, and it's like right in the middle of the book too which is, I, I think, a, a fun deceptive trick that it's like, by putting something in the middle of the book, it's like, here's the theme, but no, it's not. Um, it's like, you just look at this and then and then jump out. So, but, okay, so keying into that idea of this being a literary fiction with just a spark of magic in there, that, I think, is a separate genre uh, itself. Um, I, I think that makes this book akin to a genre that we, we all... Uh, at least at the time of recording this have recently experienced that this Mm. book is a christmas movie (laughs) so
0: you're just to be clear you're arguing that your sort of what you're saying the concept of a literary fiction with a spark of magic like that whole phrase is itself its own genre
1: that's a christmas movie that's the genre of a christmas movie sure um uh, and, and that's so like specifically here, and and this shouldn't come as a surprise. I don't think I'm thinking of two Christmas movies, um, and that's Christmas Carol, and right. It's a Wonderful Life, um, which It's a Wonderful Life. I think in in a way builds on a Christmas Carol because in a Christmas Carol and, and in this book as well builds on the same idea, because. You, you've got this encounter with a supernatural thing, this spark of magic, to learn a lesson from. Um, so Scrooge in A Christmas Carol meets the ghosts of Christmas present, uh, past, and future, right? Um, to to explore himself uh, in these situations. In It's a Wonderful Life, uh, George Bailey meets uh, Clarence, or the the ghost of Christmas present subjunctive conditional
0: um, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> uh nora in midnight library meets uh mrs elm um who is the the ghost of christmas assumed true for argument's sake um, and that's that that's the, that's the concept i think overall that, that that it's in exploring these multiverses in that way in in allowing this, this what if, to have a brief life that we then leave, um, having just it, it's surrounding this moment. Even you know, in here it's midnight, which is that traditional Christmas hour. Um, uh, it it is that that Christmas movie concept of here's this spark of magic that exists only for a moment in time at the darkest time that we then move out of being the better for it Um, yeah
0: um this answer actually reminded me of a way that i want to say when i was like halfway through reading this book and never since then that i told myself i was going to start this whole pair of episodes which was something to the effect of just accusing you of, of making me read like um you know, it's a wonderful life, but it's the 21st century or something. Like I had some joke I was going (laughs) to do that was literally exactly that. Um, and just as a completely like barely relevant aside, I do want to say don't at us. I know, I know my forties movies and I know that Frank Capra went on record as saying that, um, the script for, uh, um, for it's a wonderful life was inspired by some, like, I want to say it was like a self published novella by someone that he knew or that, sure. you know, he had a second or third level connection to, and this was put in his hands or something. And that like, uh, you know, some people consider it like an urban legend to say that, like, it, it uh, it's a wonderful life is just a Christmas Carol updated for the late forties. Um, but on the other hand, just, like, get your head out of your butt. Like, a, <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life is just a Christmas Carol updated for the late 40s. Like, I don't care about this supposed literary like,
1: heritage. Like,
0: it's that, not that does not doesn't
1: detract that. from its greatness? No, like,
0: it's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, absolutely.
1: It, exactly.
0: But I'm just saying, like, that... After, don't like, try to make it something it's not. <laughs> there, it There's, not like, a really is. specific and detailed heritage in the few years... Leading up to "It's a Wonderful Life" getting made, that like people try to use to discount its greater heritage within literature broadly understood, if you can understand films as literature, and I'm just saying that particular argument is stupid, um, and that yours, (laughs) your connection between "Christmas Carol," "Wonderful Life," and indeed this book is extremely valid. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Did you have any anything further you wanted to say? Like, as an answer to that extremely long question that I asked before we, like, branch too far off.
1: Not directly, I don't think. Just, you know, th- there's that whole chapter that's right in the middle, starting on page 144, that is just explaining the rules. Yeah. Um, it's uh, life and death and the quantum wave function. Right. Uh, which is just a fun, fun title, as, as they all are um and and it it does just explain it and it just says quantum physics right which like so that that sort of thing in a in a, in the hands of a less skilled writer is lazy mm-hmm. just saying like ju- just saying the words quantum physics um is in the the many worlds theory i think that's that's in here too or many worlds interpretation of quantum physics there it is on page 146 yeah which
0: also you will notice Um, directly does explain the schrodinger's cat thing
1: yes absolutely like that that that's where it comes out explicitly there um so uh like in the hands of a less skilled author That's lazy, and it's just like, I didn't do my research, I know quantum physics is a thing, I know multiverses is a a thing, I know Schrodinger's cat is a thing, so I'm just going to smash these words together in here, and that's going to explain the magic of this. But the thing is, this gets entered into and exited so quickly that it just forms a backdrop um, that is non-essential for the rest of the book that it, it really creates that same point that it, it's just that spark of magic that's that's there and we don't actually need it explained.
0: Yeah. Or rather, For like, this book, e- even within, and this is a very literary thing that, like, um, especially the pulpier of pulp authors, and I don't mean that term derogatorily, but um, this is not how they'd approach it, but, like, what explanation there is is not to sort of reach out of the text to try to explain something to us and make it seem more realistic somehow. It's mm-hmm. it's like, um, uh, oh, what's the term? It's like self-reinforcing. It's the text explaining itself. Um, yeah. So in a very real sense, this, uh, uh, you know, long paragraph towards the bottom of 146 where we do just get the explicit explanation of uh, uh, the cat guy. Um, (laughs) Like, that text doesn't exist to explain the physics or the science or the math of Schrodinger's cat to us. It exists to explain it as a concept that is useful in further understanding the text of the book. Like, the fact that it... um, Reaches out to like a real concept that is really being used. Maybe lends the book itself some more credibility or something like that. But it does not like it's not there to justify itself.
1: Right, right. And this this leads into or leads into um a a section if I can take the reins for us for for a, uh, for a, for a yes. bit. Uh, it's the the names with Michael <laughs> section. Um, I'm going to start with Hugo, um, because I think his name serves, uh, in, in in a way that, uh, it it related to Nora in in a way, um, Hugo's name serves, uh, as a homophone. Okay. Um, the, the name Hugo is just Hugo. Sure. Um, Hugo is there to... Hand the reins back to Nora. Sure, it's it's not about Hugo. He vanishes quite quickly after we meet him, and it's just Hugo. Um, uh, so pointing back to Nora. So Nora, um, who I I want to talk more about Nora as a character, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about names first. Uh, so Nora, first of all, also sounds homophonic. Uh, as Nor-a. So thinking about all of these options, she is nor uh, a Olympian athlete, nor a musician in this famous rock band, nor a traveler to Australia, nor uh, a uh glaciologist or what, right. or what, whatever she she is you know all of these different things so it's it's nor to all of those that feels like that she could have been it's it's eliminating all of that
0: feels options. like a particularly good catch yeah. for an american reader because that that feels right and it feels more like something that would occur to like a british reader like it feels more like a british usage That's, Mm-hmm
1: something i was trying to trying to think of as i was reading this book is is put it in a more british mindset and i think that that's exactly right um but then her last name do you remember her last name
0: seed i seed, did think
1: right and so i don't
0: i don't do the name thing as like uh naturally as you do but even i did think that that seemed significant
1: that is so on the surface and it's so on the surface because who is Um, Well, first of all, uh, there's all this talk about the root life and all of the branches of that life. And so Nora herself is the seed. And that's like the lesson that she needs to learn is that she is the seed of her life going forward. Um, So all of the potential to come out of herself as this seed. But who is the second character introduced in this entire novel?
0: The man who tells her about... That her cat maybe did?
1: That's 19 years later.
0: Then I forget.
1: It's Mrs. Elm. Oh, of course. (laughs) Who's her Jiminy Cricket, but the name Elm, Right. right? It's a tree. So pointing out that, like, this is one possibility, and Mrs. Elm is there to show her this is one possibility. This is one possibility. This is one possibility. So this is one possible outcome from a seed is... Mrs. L, right? right? Um, so that that relationship is is keyed in there of like this older, wiser mentor to the young grasshopper, um, and so that that whole whole idea of of Nora as a seed. But that's so like this getting back into her character a little bit here that relates to her name um, in a more tangential way. That that lesson that she needs to learn about herself as the seed her this life as a seed that still has places to grow and infinite possibilities going forward um is who is her favorite philosopher henry david thoreau of
0: course
1: um who went into where the woods a cabin
0: Um, where a bunch of ladies kept like doing <laughs> his laundry and bringing yeah, him ties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and... Oh, sorry, the woods.
1: I, I'm, I'm not worried about the actual Thoreau. No, I'm, I'm worried about this this conceptual gotcha. Thoreau and Nora's mind. So he went into the woods, right, where all of these trees right. are, right? Um, So that, that idea of life, vibrant life. But his purpose was to live deliberately. Um, and that's like taking this idea of this seed growing, think in terms of like a bonsai tree that you craft it and you shape it deliberately where it needs to go um and she's lost that idea Mm -hmm. like she loves this idea of of thoreau and that idea of going out and living deliberately but she's lost actually um living that um that uh she can in this seed life live deliberately and nourish that seed and craft it where she wants it to go she's forgotten that potential um like I uh, mentioned with the, the lost in the cosmos chapter that like well assume that that you're a person who doesn't have to be here like you don't have to be trapped in this one place right. um craft it going forward that's that's the lesson that she winds up learning as a result of this um brief encounter with a little bit of Christmas <laughs> magic
0: right <laughs> uh, anything further on names with that's Michael.
1: Oh, uh, yes, yes. The one more is the cat. Um, the cat's name is Voltaire, oh, another yes. philosopher, um, and he dies very quickly, um, which which then is is kind of the inciting incident for the rest of the breakdown. Mm. Um, Voltaire being um, in his philosophy very um, was he a rationalist exactly? That's not, I'm, that's not quite i
0: right. have, I have I'm like criminally unknowledgeable about Voltaire like i haven't read much by him there, i haven't read something. much about him
1: was he in, he was enlightenment yes, he was enlightenment era he was enlightenment era so like the, the 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 idea is that the this cat named Voltaire has died that's the death of right. reason so nora has lost yeah. her ability to yeah that does seem fair and deliberately yeah. live going forward so that's that's my concept there for sure. for Voltaire um okay
0: i'm done (laughs) one thing that i wanted to bring up before the end here circles back to my first set of remarks about this book about it being a very smooth book a very like in a lot of ways very straightforward and i feel like that was echoed throughout names with michael like the you know and i and i strongly suspect you're absolutely right about all of them like i didn't hear one that i had any questions about um but just the idea that like you know, Hugo is, is his his name is literally just a homophone for what the theme of his character is, um,
2: yep.
0: Like that kind of thing. Like it's just one is tempted to use the phrase on the nose. It's just like right there. It's not being subtle <laughs> at all. Um, and like that's mm-hmm. again, I say that without inherent judgment. Like that's not necessarily, uh. Uh, you know a bad thing inherently um it connects in my mind to when you were talking about the idea of like vignettes and the idea that like it seems like you know a lot of the when i when i sort of questioned you about the vignettes idea that it was the schrodinger's cat thing of um they're perceived in the order that they're perceived in you know it, that that it's dependent on the reader to like complete that or fulfill that um and then the sure. idea that that's like how all fiction always works like i don't think any of that is accidental i think that's like a mm-hmm. valid analysis in the sense that i think that's what matt hagg is doing is he's just sort of doing the things that fiction always does in some ways but like making it explicit yeah. um and yeah. yeah part of my
1: th- stripping it bare
0: yeah yeah and which, it's...
1: which it really like literally he does almost by just he he could have had numbers at the head of each <laughs> chapter title right. just but, but just taking them away you
0: know? um yeah and it's it's further connected uh in my mind to to this article that that was at least mentioned um in our table setting episode the uh the multiverse episode um Because, like, the conclusion of that article, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, but the conclusion of that article basically gets down to the idea that, like, the whole reason to, like, engage with multiverses is to reaffirm the universe you do live in. Because as far as we know, we can't escape our own universe. Like, even if multiverse theory has any reality or bearing, like it's almost useless to us except as a thought exercise to reaffirm whatever choices or values we've made in this life or you know the corollary would be if we're questioning that or if we're upset with that to like encourage us to just go make whatever change do do whatever thing Mm -hmm. um and that's the theme of of uh is the multiverse where originality goes to die. It's the theme, as I understand it, of the, uh, um, blanking of, uh, of, uh entanglements. entanglements. Thank you. Um,
1: by David Gerald.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's the theme of that, like in sort of a negative way, it's the theme of the, the Larry Niven story that we discussed on that yeah. episode. Um, so, you know, it, 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 uh, harmonizes with all of that, but like, in a very literary way, I would say. Um, Yeah. Like, I think I mentioned that, like, the place that, again, using very provisional terms that may be problematic and or meaningless, but the place that lit fiction or literary fiction and speculative fiction, where they overlap often is in the idea of the thought experiment. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, like, Emphasizing Matt Haig's just like usage of sort of uh, the novel form in its most basic, like simplest way. Um, This is a a literary thought experiment in like speculative fiction terms, um, arguably. Mm. Uh, So like this, this novel just becomes an embodiment of that thought experiment of what if multiverses were real what if you could access them would it make a difference and Mm. this is why i think at some point either this episode or last episode i said i thought this book was somewhat more didactic than some of the other examples that i mentioned sure even lost in the cosmos let alone like jacques the fatalist or (laughs) you know some of the other ones um in that it it has a very specific like used the word lesson earlier. Um, it has a very specific lesson. Mm-hmm. Yep. Certainly that Nora learns and that I yes. think it, it would prefer that you learned. I don't know. Um, maybe that's too much of a stretch, but the idea that like m- the multiverse idea is only useful or interesting in conceptualizing, like how you move forward in this life. Um, right. So that's like, I guess sort of the summary of what I took away. Uh, Michael, I would like to give you a chance to either respond to that, bring up anything that you sort of haven't gotten to yet that you desperately want to, um, considering that we're running up on our time. But I want to give you last, uh, last rights nope. of rebuttal.
1: I I just want to highlight the fact that like we, we talked a lot about the concept of this book yeah. and very little about the plot. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I would I would
0: argue that... Which is interesting.
1: We we, we touched on it. I mean, we so. didn't
0: talk about the plot in, like, the way you draw it on, like, an Aristotelian incline, but talking about the, vin- That's what the I vignettes mean. and the, the Zeno's, you know, theory of motion and that stuff, like, I think got at the plot. But, I'm sorry, right. I didn't mean to interrupt if um, you wanted to then... say something more specific about the plot. No,
1: no, 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 no. That... Like, uh, but like the the character arc that you see yeah. in all of this, you can see it. Um, and we talked about this too when we were talking about chopping up the vignettes. That it's really there in the front chunk and the last chunk, but then the middle eighty percent is just the 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 snapshots yeah. of, of the arc until the end. Um, but the arc itself is demonstrated very clearly by um the the first sentence and the last sentence. Okay. Um. And it's highlighted, like, as you get towards the end, just the frequency of the word maybe. Sure, yeah. It's all over the place. The word maybe is all over the place at the end. But the very first sentence, um, and I'm just going to read the first sentence fragment. 19 years before she decided to die. Keyword, decided. Right. At the end, just the last sentence fragment fragment uh, about Nora thinking about her next sure. move. Sure. Um, so the, the the difference in Nora is she's decided at the front, and she's right. stuck, and then at the end is she's thinking about her right. next move, and it's it's the parallel of the chess right. game, where in the front in the first chapter there that conversation about rain, she's decided and she's locked in and she's going to lose this chess game. At the end she's playing this chess game and she's going to enjoy it and she's just thinking about her next yeah. move. There's no lock into it. There's this potential that's going forward. Uh, and that's her character arc as she, you know, a- a- after she's decided she's locked in, she's going to kill herself. Um, and then there, in between life and death, she experiences this midnight library, and that's her arc to getting her back to life, where then she has potential moving
0: forward. Right. I would also like to note that, like, in support of my argument that this is a very on-the-nose book, um the last mm-hmm. chapter or section or whatever is called how it ends yes <laughs> yes it is <laughs> yes it
1: uh that's it.
0: anything further from you michael
1: uh not a, no
0: no <laughs> uh excellent decision making there um i yeah uh i think we're on to ratings then and i think the only rating we're doing this episode is rating
1: this book right uh we have historically rated the pairing as well oh yes
0: of course thank you um so but first i think firstly we uh should rate the book on our Mm -hmm. uh patented scale if anyone else uses the scale um they owe us money um the -hmm. scale for this book is buy borrow or forget about it michael what is your rating
1: this one's tough. This one's tough. Um, I'm, I'm hovering between borrow and buy. And the, the result of me hovering there because... Um, and you've, you've taught me well, Ethan, but uh, it, it serves pretty well. Because I'm hovering there between those two, because Matt Haig is a living, working author, buy it. Um, the only reason I'd say borrow it is because uh, it's such a quick read, um, that uh, you can you can get through it pretty quick and then decide for yourself whether you're interested in more of his work or in buying this one. But I say buy it. It's not going to break the bank, I should say. And it's supporting a living author. And I think as smooth as this book is, it is one that is quite fun to contemplate and think about and, and return to. Um and even just as I as I was looking back at this, I, I realized for the first time that the cover itself isn't just a sequence of windows, but it's zeros. Mm-hmm. It's the time mm-hmm. at the Midnight Library, it's the time of midnight. I didn't realize that until we were recording tonight. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you can discover new things just by having it on your shelf.
0: So that's buy it. Buy it is my rating. Um here's my specific rating and this is specific to this book uh Boy. which is borrow it but i feel bad <laughs> um cuz frankly i was hovering and i have been hovering even since i finished it between borrow it and forget about it um oh. like at no point did i like it enough to rate it a buy um okay and the reason i feel bad is that i do feel like mac feel like Matt Haig is a good writer and I like would read more things by him but Mm. I guess and like I I really tried to like play this close to the chest over the course of these two episodes but like I didn't feel like he did anything with the multiverse concept that hasn't been done before in either a literary or a, like speculative fiction sense hmm. like um on a literary level like i think he uh uh you know just kind of retread borges really um and you know borges garden of hmm. forking paths is like a five-page story it takes a lot less time to read even mm-hmm. though i agree like this is a quick <laughs> read it's it's breezy um yeah but You know, I I don't think he did anything that was, like, more interesting than Borges did in that story. Um, and then, like, part of how I conceptualize this question about, like, is this, like, the literary techniques versus the speculative techniques is that, like, the part of the... I was never bored by the story. Like, I think the short chapters and, like, Matt Haig's clear skill as a writer, like, you know, drew me through it in a way that, like, I never, I never, like, bogged down, I never was really tempted to, like, skim anything, um, but that said, to me, the most interesting part, the part where I, like, perked up the most, was when Nora met Hugo and the implication that there was, like, a you know, mm. extended universe of these sliders and, and that there would be something to go with there, like... A pulp author from 50 years ago, who are not, like, gods to me or anything, like, they have plenty of their own flaws, but a pulp author from 50 years ago would have come up with that concept, and then there would have been, like, excuse me, a slider war, or, like, some kind of chase, (laughs) or just, like, anything along those lines, and that story would have been vastly more interesting to me than this one. Like... Sure. I guess, here's here's the worst thing I have to say about this book. Um, and again, I feel bad because, like, I think Matt Haig is a good writer, and I, you know, if he were to listen to this podcast, which hopefully he doesn't, but if he were to, I wouldn't want him to feel bad or judged. And now that said, sure. I do feel like the Midnight Library is just, like, the most basic possible version of the multiverse concept. Like any other version of this concept would be more interesting to me. Now, that said, and, like, you know, this is sort of the theme that I even started out this pair of episodes with, like, for that, he does it extremely skillfully. And I think that if you're going to read, like, Uh one version of the story, especially in a novel form as opposed to, like, um, the novella that I'm going to argue A Christmas Carol represents or... The movie form of it's a wonderful life or any of the other like versions of scrooge that exist if you're going to read this as a modern novel i think the midnight library is it um Mm. so that's why i'd say it's like to me the recommendation is like if you see this on the shelf at your local library and you like just want to read a book that'll take you like a weekends a a relatively free weekends worth of reading um this is a just fine uh uh selection um Mm -hmm. and and again like i came away from this with that opinion which sounds pretty negative you know potentially also wanting to read more matt hag books like i you know the front of this book has um one two three four five like 10 uh titles listed even before you get to the four children section and it's like if i found any of those in the bookstore i would pick it up look at the back cover whatever and like if the concept was at all interesting to me i think i would buy that book um it kind of reminds me of what i feel like you kind of ended up saying about station 11 that like this wasn't the one but like Hmm. other books by this author might be the one it was it's kind of a similar similar place for me okay Um, yep but I will say so and and again part of the reason I say I feel bad about this rating is like living author like uh I did blush with pride when you said I had taught you you know to rate things this way (laughs) um what I'd say is borrow this one Read it, and then, like, buy the next one, is, is what I'd, I guess I'd like to say about it.
1: That's a very specific rating.
2: Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I can't, like, get a hold of a simple rating system and then not break it. So, here we are. Sure, sure. Uh, Michael, how did you feel about the pair of uh, Glenn Morangy, Glenn Morangy, uh 10 with The Midnight Library? Perfect match, pretty good match, slight um, mismatch, total mismatch.
1: I'm going to say pretty good match. Um, it's got enough sweetness and just enough complexity that it, the, the, the scotch keeps me interested without overwhelming the sure. text. I think it complements sure. it pretty nicely.
0: Um once again I'm going to like slide one more rung down on the letter from you ladder from you and say slight mismatch. <laughs> if I had been thinking about it in the exact terms you just brought up um I might go with your rating. Um the terms
1: so you're, what you're saying is if you were thinking exactly the same way I was you would come to the yes, same conclusion. Yes, that is
0: what I I'm did. saying and it's a very profound statement. <laughs> um what i was thinking in terms of it was almost like like if we'd reversed which one we thought was the chicken and which one we thought was the egg because what i was thinking of was that glenmorangie is mm. a beautiful highland scotch highland scotches are noted no, mm-hmm. notable noted for sort of a balance they're not too peaty they're not too sweet they're not too grassy they're not too mm-hmm. anything they're very nicely balanced and i feel like other scotches that we've uh uh consumed on this podcast the glenn Faudry 12 comes to mind have a lot more like variety where it's like in a sip you might get multiple different things or in multiple different sips you might get multiple different things and something like that would have paralleled with the like you know, multitude of vignettes and lives that Nora lives in this book. So that's why I say slight mismatch. Um, along with, you know, the, the reason I'd say slight rather than total is like more along the lines of what you said and saying pretty good match. Uh, any last thoughts, Michael? No. Excellent.
1: No, I've exhausted them.
0: Uh, so next time, gentle listener, we are going to be talking about my pick, which is The House on Haunted Hill by Shirley Jackson. Um, Mm -hmm. please feel free to read along. Any thoughts you might have, put into the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Put Scotch Talk in the subject line. On Twitter, so long as it exists, we are at Room with Scotch. Um... (laughs) if you want us to do your homework past present or indeed future or indeed from another universe that you can access um <laughs> we will do that if you submit it to the form at tapestryradio.org slash slash uh this outro is just like a a vocal challenge after two episodes um the uh join us at our other programs on the tapestry radio network we have intermission our audio drama pl- podcast us play fiasco our fiasco rpg slash improv podcast we have freddie goes to a podcast another literary book-based podcast where three grown men uh read the freddie the pig um book series published for children a hundred years ago and we have Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Uh, that said, Michael, anything else you want anyone to know? No. Uh, Thank you. Um, me either. That said, until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if our own self-imposed rating systems make us. Okay, <laughs> bye. Bye. Obscurantism and Obfuscation.